will mark the second week we will be discussing worship. Um, let us begin, uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, this is not to be, a lesson like this is not to be considered lightly. Uh, Lord, this is something that is, we are discussing a topic of worship and how critical it is that we know how to worship correctly and acceptably in your eyes. I pray that you would be speaking this morning through your word alone. Uh, any insights given, Lord, I pray just point to your word for it is sufficient for our lives. I pray that you would open our eyes to it pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you recall from last week, what did we discuss? We discussed worship as a general topic, uh, uh, really the, the, a systematic look, a doctrinal look of what worship was in, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We saw that God created us to worship. And we saw this in both a, a broad sense of worship. All of life is worship. We should be worshiping God in every aspect of our lives. But we're also worshiping God in a unique way this morning. If you came to the first service, you're here today. This is the, that narrow sense. We talked about that. But then I focused on Psalm 29, and that was so uh, uh, instrumental in my understanding of, of what it means to, to worship God. This is truly uh, ascribing God, the glory that's due his name. And we said that ascribing is truly acknowledging and recognizing who God is. And also in Psalm 96, kind of shedded light on the splendor of holiness and what that meant. We used the Greek and Hebrew words to define the definition. And I think on your notes you have a quick summary of a good definition of worship. Worship is the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord, serving him with all of our heart, soul, with all of our heart, mind, and will. And, and I think that's... We, we talked a little bit about a Trinitarian view of worship is essential. We can't worship God apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't worship him apart from Jesus Christ. All must be essential, just like we in our, in our, our full affections uh, really change to have the genuine worship. So the question today is, 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 is really an important topic. How are we to worship God? What does God require of us, does he require us to worship him in a certain way? What did we read? Let's read again in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we're going to be looking at what is acceptable worship. I think we might be... There's, there's a, a lot of books I've been reading. One has helped me a lot through John Frame, his book on worship and spirit and truth. And he, he was quoted as, 
we might be inclined to think that God should be thankful for any attention. God be thankful for any attention that we give him out of our busy schedules. But worship is not about God's thanking us. What is it about? It's, it's about our thanking him. It's our acknowledging of who he is. So I would argue that God demands that our worship now be, be governed in a certain way. What, what is the basis of, of how we are to worship God? I'll open that question. What, what is our basis for worshiping God? As Christ worshiped him. Yes, that's correct. We, we, we only come through Christ, and we use as a means of that worship, what, what is our tool in our hands that we have through Christ, we have the word of God. So th this, is, this, is, this is key. Let me ask a question. Can you think of examples in the Old Testament where God is, is not pleased with, with worship? Exactly. What Doug said is, uh, the Lord says, we're to worship, they're worshiping with my mouth, with their mouths and their, their, lip, their lips, but their heart is far from me. His heart is far from me. You're right. Okay, great example. What about uh, Cain and Abel? Was there an were, were, were both offerings acceptable? Uh, we we know uh, uh, what happened in that story. We'll discuss that more in a minute. Um, I've been going through with our with our boys that uh, long story short. I love that book. Uh, it's for family worship, and we've been going through Eli, and and Eli was a priest, and he had sons that were priests. What happened in in that case? They they were robbing of the choicest meat of an offering. God says in for, in First Samuel two. Uh, what about what about Saul? Any anything that Saul did, uh, relation to Saul, an unlawful burnt offering. That's right. So that God had an intention to bring in David, uh, someone who who was he had a uh, uh, that was going to replace Saul as king. Uh, then we also have, going to the New Testament, an example could be uh, Paul's warning. And he, in 1 Corinthians 11, he discusses this undiscerned eating and drinking. He says, for anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We, we see this throughout Scripture that God has, uh, his certain, he has acceptable worship. What about the Ten Commandments? What is, do we see a regulation of worship in the Ten Commandments? What is the first commandment? The first one forbids the worship of false gods. The second forbids worship of any god. The third forbids wrong use of God's holy name. And the fourth requires remembering the Lord's day. So we know that scripture is very clear that we know not to approach worship lightly. The wrong kind of worship provokes God's wrath, not blessing. And hopefully we've seen, really, from, from this last week, hopefully we've seen something special, right, about God's meeting with us, his presence with us. It is truly a terrible, indeed awesome thing. We should not come to the Lord any way we please. So I, I guess what, it, what, it, what I've been finding in this text has been so key for me. It was eye-opening uh, as I try to get my mind around worship of God in the Old Testament and the New. Uh, this, is all, this is all new study for me, and... And to, to see some, some of how this thing threads together, if you're talking about the Old Testament, you're talking about the New Testament, 
You talk about Old Covenant, you talk about New Covenant. What's a book of the Bible that we can go to? And, and that's where I got to Hebrews. I see Hebrews as almost this connecting bridge to these covenants. And so what I want to do now is focus on uh, Hebrews 12, going back to 18. So just if you already have your Bibles there, keep it there. Hebrews 12. And as we read this, I would ask that you all would, would look for uh, how, how, how worship is done in the Old Covenant, how worship is done in the New Covenant. Are there distinctions, and are there any similarities? So let's read this, uh, Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now we get to our verses. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So I guess uh, let, me, let me try to I'll just write this down. We're talking about worship, and so it, it helps me trying to think about it uh, in this light. And, and this was kind of, uh, as I t thought about What's different about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Uh, I'll probably make... That marker's not good. No? Borrowed me there? Okay, we're talking about worship. We see an element of discontinuity, and, and I'll probably make a lot of dispensationalists in the room very happy with this, this phrase, but discontinuity, what does that mean? We'll talk about how God's dealing with people as it continues through Scripture, uh, what, and then we'll, then we'll talk about continuity, okay? So what, what are we seeing here in these verses? And so uh, let's, let's look now. At, uh, we see some distinctions, really, in the Old Testament. So let's focus on Old Testament. I'll just put OT. 
uh, and then we'll see some distinctions with the New Testament. And so right here, I'm just I'm highlighting on these verses, 18 through 21. Sorry, that goes right here. Okay. Let's look at this. Go back to 18. Let's think about what, what is not the same in the covenants. What's the first, first thing the author of Hebrews says? For, for you have not come to what may be touched. What, what, where are we in the new? We're, we're talking about Moses, Mount Sinai. We're to, we know the stories there. In the new covenant, there is no restriction on touching physical terrain. So we see a difference in, in that. We talk about a blazing fire. There is no blazing fire in the new covenant uh, in the presence of God, indicating the presence of God. Then, we, then look, what's the next phrase? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness. There is no darkness as God prepares to speak to his people in, in the new covenant. Gloom. There is no gloom settling over the people of God as they sit in the houses of worship. The tempest, what is a tempest? Storm. There is, there is no hurricane or tornado brewing up as we prepare to read God's word. What's, what's the next? Let's, let's, verse 19. At the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In the new covenant, do we see a divine trumpet call and, and that, that's piercing our ears as we prepare to read God's word together? That is, that is not the case. What's the next? No further messages be spoken to him. This is a voice which made the hearers beg for silence. Uh, you can read this story going back into uh, Mount Sinai, the law coming. There is no voice from heaven that's so powerful and austere and full of such just and austere language that the hearers can tolerate even listening to it. There's a difference. What about the next phrase? For they could not... In Endure the order that was given. Even the beast that touches the mountain shall be stoned. Even if you came close, are you stoned? Is that the case? When the word of God is preached, we come before the, the, the preaching. Is that the case today? There is no geographical restriction for us to stay away from, from the pulpit or, or something that we could say for when, the when the preaching is taking place so that we, we violate the holiness of God. There's a difference. The next phrase. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I, I guess the way I saw the discontinuity there was that there, there's, there's no threat uh, of a death penalty for those who venture too near and touch the physical premise of the building. The sight was so terrifying that Mo, even Moses, the leader of the Israelites, was, was in fear. So, so that, that, that was kind of a... a I saw through the old covenant there some discontinuity. Then there's distinctions now in the in the new covenant. So this would be verses 22 through 24. Let's read verse 22. There's a big there's a contrast here. But you have come. What was verse 18? For you have not come. Now we have a contrast here in verse 22. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
What is he referring to here in, with Mount Zion and the, the city of the living God? What do you think he means here? presence of God. There, there's a difference here. There, you see the contrast of, of Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Here we are. We've come. We are, it's actually, the phrase is actually right now. We are already in the condition of, 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 coming, of having come. So shorthand, for, I think, for probably referring to even our conversions. Uh, these people did not live in Jerusalem and did not have regular access to the mountain in Jerusalem. So we know Mount Zion was, was where they, uh, Solomon built the temple, the center of the Jewish worship. And uh, I think we can go on a side tangent and really focus on another great passage today. We just won't have the time. But John 4. John 4 is clearly where Jesus is, is responding to the Samaritan woman, where you see the distinctions. The Samaritans got it wrong in worship. Where did, where did they go? Mount Gerizim. They, they, they got it wrong. You, then you had the Jews, there were these ritualistic worshipers. They got it wrong. Jesus says it's different. It's not about a place that we should worship. What, is, what does Jesus say? We worship in spirit and truth, spirit of the spirit of God, based on the truth of God. Uh, another focus there. So here, here, back in Hebrews, we are, this is different. This, these are distinctions. These, this was not in the Old Covenant. We have come to Mount Zion. We have been converted there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. Do you see that uh, distinction now? Now there are myriads of angels in festal gathering. There's, there's a contrast to the darkness, to the smoke, to the gloom, the tempest. There are, there are a myriad of angels in a festal gathering. They are happily there. What is the next phrase? Verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Uh, I just I took this. To, I didn't do a huge study, but I took this to see that this could be probably just an entire the entire group of believers. As believers, we are given uh, benefits and rights as we are to be firstborn. As as Christians, we 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 just just as Christ Christ is the firstborn, but yet as believers, we are firstborn. And you even see that we are enrolled in heaven, as if uh, the the writing is in the in the book of life here. Um, this is a distinction now. Uh, verse 23, the second part. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. So this is uh, even in the, uh, the amazing reality that, that we have in this, this Mount Zion, the myriad of angels. We, we have God seen as a judge. And I almost, almost imply that that almost brings it back to some similarity. So don't take this as, as absolute here, but, but I do see some similarity there. God is always the judge. He's the judge of the old covenant. He's the judge of the new. But the fact that it's in here is important. God is the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So now, now we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Perhaps these are believers from before the time of the cross, uh, from Old Testament times. Uh, what is, let's turn back to Hebrews 4.11. He walked all the way through the heroes of the faith. In the last verse, let's go to 39. The last two verses in Hebrews 11. And all these things committed through their faith did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, 
they should not be made perfect. So, so we see this idea that that is referring to the faithful saints, that apart from, from us, they should not be made perfect. So this is a time that we post-cross believers see the saints. And then we get to the climax, I think, in verse uh, 24. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, he, he has shed his blood, and he has truly ushered in a new covenant. Uh, we, we focused on that last week. We went through all of the tabernacle, the temple, how Jesus fulfilled it all. And, um, and obviously we read that in Matthew 5, that he fulfilled the law. He stands now as the mediator between us and God. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 2, 5. Have somebody read that. 1 Timothy 2, 5. And we can continue to verse 6. Yes, thank you. There's one mediator that is Christ. Uh, now we see uh, that, that uh, there is a sprinkling of blood. Uh, this is, is really what was the, the, the purpose of the blood, for the propitiation of the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. Uh, the blood of Jesus. Now we see an interesting phrase. It speaks. What, what does he mean that this sprinkled blood speaks a better word? Let's go to Genesis 4. You know the story of Cain and Abel. I'll just start in verse 8. Uh, Genesis 4, 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his, his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I, your brother's am I my brother's keeper? And this is the verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood, the voice, there's a voice to this blood. It's crying. And what do we see here in, in Hebrews? That it says that uh, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the sprinkled to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. This is now no longer this blood that is crying vengeance. But this is blood that is crying mercy. We have, this is, this is truly something uh, marvelous here about that, that sprinkled blood. So, so now let's focus on... Uh, Continuity. So now I'll make dispensationalists mad, right? And the covenant theologians happy with this word in continuity. But I guess what I'm getting at is I'm seeing both here, and I'll just show my cards. But I see both. Uh, let's let's go on. Uh, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So now we move where the author now points us to the worship of, of who? What I'm seeing here is this is the same God, the same God of the Old Covenant. We saw many distinctions. We've already talked about all that with the discontinuity. But uh, now there is an element of continuity. Both the Old Testament and New Testament worshipers still had to respond 
correct? There was, there was an element they had to respond, and we, and we know to respond in faith, to not refuse God who is speaking in verse 25. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So we know God will once again shake this place. Uh, the same God who shook the earth at Sinai. I, I just, I kind of failed to, to think about that. I was reading the, uh, the Old Testament and, and what took place there with Moses and, and the land just shaking. That will happen again. We know that to be true. And what is the purpose? In verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Why does the shaking occur? What do you guys think? What, what is the purpose of God doing this? He's going to be revealing something. What is left? What remains? Sorry? The foundation is, is left. God's, God's people are, are, are here. There is The temporal is truly gone, but the eternal will stay. And that's, what, that's how we get now to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, not will not. This is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It will not be shaken. It, it cannot. Sh- I already said it. It, it. It's not will not. It cannot be shaken. So I still see the continuity there. So, that would, yeah, that's verse 25 through 28. Um, Go to Hebrews 8, 13. We talk of all these covenants. I think this is helpful in, in Hebrews 8, 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So so there's, there's obviously uh, heavy truths here. I mean... <laughs> There is something that is different in the old covenant. It is, it is now God's Christ has fulfilled it. What, I guess we're getting at what that means, and we can get into that more length in another forum, but this is, uh, th- this is clear that, that, the, that the new covenant is clearly making the old covenant obsolete, and, um, and, and, and yet we still see continuity through Hebrews' text. So now let's get into the last two verses here. Back to Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful. What is... What is what do we have now? We have, we have a commandment, let us be grateful. We know that the kingdom, uh, just a simple observation, the kingdom is a gift, and it must be received. These are, these are commandments, I would say, that are now commandments of what new covenant worship should look like. The author urges us strongly here that we know of, that we have a superior covenant. We talked of how the first one's obsolete. We have the superior one. We, we know we should not refuse it. And by faith, we trust in it. Therefore, with let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. So what, do we, what is the command again? We must be grateful. Grateful for receiving a kingdom that will not be shaken. Christ, we know, is our mediator, our sacrifice. We have the kingdom that will withstand the future judgment. <laughs> that, that really... That, that should, that should, we should cling in utter response to gratefulness for that. It should drive us to gratitude. And, and that what does that gratitude look like? 
I guess that, that's really what we'll spend the rest of the time this morning. What does that look like? Does that look like we, we come to God in any, any way we please? It doesn't matter where my heart is. It doesn't matter how I experienced this last week and dealing with this coworker or whatever the situation may be. I'm going to just come to worship at, uh, and I'm speaking now, I guess, of church. But anytime we come before the Lord, do we just take it casually? That's, that's what I'm getting at here. Uh, we have to know what the word acceptable means. If we worship God in all of life, we need to know what, what acceptable means. And this is, comes with the, a phrase, with reverence and awe. So I think we clearly see that there is a particular type of worship that God wants of us. And we have seen examples of the Old Testament, the, the unacceptable worship, and, uh, and, and now we see this. Another thing I thought was interesting is, let us be grateful is, is worded a completely different way in, in, in the original language sometimes. It's just let us, it's almost let us have grace. A response of knowing the kingdom will not be shaken. Let us have grace. Let us appropriate the grace. In, in a Zondervan commentary it said, we need to appropriate this grace that God offers us, not letting it go, because only by grace can we serve as we should. And we know that to be true. Only by grace. Um, yet, I think the last verse comes us, brings us back to continuity. Uh, our God is a consuming fire. The same, that occurred. I think any of Old Testament uh, uh, people knew that, or at least experienced it, and we know it to be true here in New Covenant worship. God is a consuming fire. So despite all the distinctions, we have the same God. But do we see him that way? Do we see God as a consuming fire? It, it was to me a little strange that this was here in the context of all of that's happening, but I think what it gets back to is, is the reverence and awe. We need to understand how to worship God acceptably, and, uh, and, and we need to realize and evaluate in our own hearts, are we, are we really revering God's holiness? So let's talk now with the rest of the time we have on acceptable. So um, we would have a, a general assumption, I think, altogether that, that, that Historic Christian doctrine of Scripture, it teaches that Scripture is the very Word of God, and it's the ultimate authority. We have that assumption. It's infallible, it's inerrant. Therefore, uh, Romans 12, I'll just read it, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, there's that word again, holy and acceptable to God, for which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and what is acceptable and perfect. So, uh, so going into church history here, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the regulative principle. So I think you have that maybe in your notes. Uh, what we're going to talk about is, are there different principles that have been established in the past and... Uh, and, and so we see one with the regulative principle. There's a box, I think, in your notes that we see some denominations uh, holding to two different principles. So typically, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Baptists, do they worship the same way as Presbyterians? Uh, you could ask that of any, any denomination, really. Are we all worshiping the same way? But uh, it's worthy to note, and we'll just, we're not going to focus the entire uh, time here on this issue, but it was, it was helpful for me. Uh, the first one is the normative principle of worship. The normative principle states that we may do anything in worship 
except what Scripture forbids. So there's there's some freedom there. There's you, you do anything, but you in worship. And 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 by the way, what I'm referring to now, we've come now to the the narrow sense of worship, I'm talking about the local church gathering. Um, a local church gathering uh, in this context is, is doing anything in worship except which, which it forbids. And what is the outcome of that? Scripture regulates worship almost in a negative way. It regulates worship by ex- executing a veto power, right? Uh, we, can, we can do anything in Scripture except with uh, anything in worship except what Scripture forbids. And, and now we've come to the Presbyterians and a lot of Reformed churches. Uh, they would hold to a regulative principle. How does that differ? A regulative principle is, is in the worship service, you only do whatever Scripture does not command, or scripture, what, whatever Scripture does not command is forbidden. So you're only doing what Scripture says to do in the regulative principle. Uh, this is not permitted to do anything unless... Really, it's, it's like if you, you don't do anything unless the Bible gives it a thumbs up. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But what is the outcome? Scripture has more than veto power. Scripture must positively require a practice. If that practice is to be suitable for the worship of God. So uh, real briefly, I'll just talk about uh, strengths and weaknesses that I was reading on this. And... Uh, I guess as I'm finding all this, I'm, I guess I found myself leaning more on the regulative principle side, but I've been brought up all normative my whole life. I mean, I've been brought up in Bible churches. My dad was in the Army, and we lived all over the country. We'd always go to a Bible church. I've always been brought up, uh, and I would probably categorize myself in the normative light. But let's go through what are strengths in the normative principle. You see the Bible, it's filled with principles for worship, uh, and you use them as principles, uh, and it gives freedom really for leaders in our church to, uh, to determine the proper methods for uh, worship. Another interesting strength I thought I saw in this is that it's treating the, the, the worship, to get, like I called worship gathered and scattered, the narrow and broad. There's the same principle that's applying there. When you go back home today and, ha- and how you worship God, are you only doing the things that the Bible is saying to do in everything in life? If in the normative light, you're taking the principles of God's word, and, and, and you're doing that same thing even in the, in the narrow sense. You're taking the principles. Of, so there's, a, there's a, a, a synergy there. But there's some weaknesses. I think we know that there can be too much freedom in the normative light. You can do anything, anything you want, uh, and we've seen that in, in all of churches in America. Uh, it can lead to a pagan syncretism. Basically, uh, culture can get so high it gets above Scripture. Good worship is measured uh, really by how much we enjoy it instead of what we seek in God's approval. So that's another weakness. And, and then a lot of these principles are, are focusing on elements. Elements would be uh, what Scripture lays out to do, the, the preaching of the Word of God, the singing, the, the praying, the offering. All of those would be elements. Uh, but if you hold to the normative light, in, 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 the, in the full sense, elements in scripture, elements that are not in Scripture can be overemphasized. They may say drama is really important to, to have at a worship service and it needs to be paramount. But we do the Lord's uh, Supper once a month or once a quarter. Uh, you know, so there's some dangers there, you can see. Uh, I'm just bringing up an example. In the regulative principle, 
I guess what I, what I found is I've saw, seen some great strengths. Good worship is defined by God's word. If we do hold to God's word being what the basis of our acceptable worship, we see strength here. Scripture is in proper place over culture. So culture is below. Um, and, and, and it gets to the pragmatic ways of thinking in a lot of churches. So there was a certain way in which you had to prescribe by and, and regulate. It was a regulated way to worship. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's true. What we want to focus on here is is in today in the new covenant how we are how do we respond? Um, so we see some great strengths. There's biblical uh, thoughts over pragmatic thoughts, but then there's some weaknesses with the regulative principle that that I, that I saw. I mean. It seems like to me that when people say they hold to the regular principle, they're only saying that that's in the sense of the, the, the church gathered. So you're not applying that same principle when you go day to day in your worship? Do you, do you not only? I bring up great examples of just prayer. I mean, when you pray, are you praying only the prayers in Scripture? Everything laid out. There's, there's, there's almost freedom as we see in, in uh, the, it seems like we've been given. We talked of the temple the tabernacle, over 200 verses in the Bible, but how many verses were on the synagogue? It wasn't much mentioned of how we are to see that service laid out, how much time for the preaching, how much time for the praying, how much, all of that. Um, what I've seen in the regular principle, though, is that there really, it seems to be that it's, it seems, I'm agreeing to the regular principle in all senses. That's what I'm coming to. I think, in my understanding so far of, of the reformers, and I've, my, my research is this, this deep, <laughs> really enough, Nothing much at all, but reformers seem to hold that as the, in the in the church gathered sense. But this is a different principle if they were to go outside, so it may lead to hypocrisy in in, in that sense. But uh, so we know that neither is clear. Virtually nobody only does what the Bible commands us to do, but yet the normative camp must come to some agreement of the principles uh, for helpfulness. Otherwise, you can come to some crazy conclusions uh, of what to do at worship. So. Um, Getting to why, what, why, where we, where do we get this regulative principle from? I think uh, um, we need to go back to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, who all is, is is familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith? I'm sure you've heard of it in terms of the larger and shorter catechisms. This was this was drawn up in uh, 1646, and I would challenge uh, Matt and Andy. I don't know if they're here. Yeah, that uh, there they are. I would love to see a study done on the confessions of faith, just walking through. That would help me because as I was going through this, I thought, oh, you know, this is so rich, yet how do we, how do we apply this? So um, this is done over 15 centuries of, of Christian thought. This is the Confession of the Church of England prescribed in 1646. So let's read this. I think you have it there uh, in your notes, 21. That would be chapter 21, section 1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any, uh, typo maybe there, uh, under any visible representation or any other way 
prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So that's the word we'll focus on, it's prescribed. Reformers highlighted that word prescribed, and they defined this as the regulative principle. So we know that Scripture condemns worship that is based on human ideas. Uh, yeah, Doug, you brought this up. Isaiah 29, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We know that it condemns, if, if their ideas are, I've got great ideas, yet uh, their heart was not there. Scripture is sufficient for all of life, 2 Timothy 3.16. And, and yet, I, I just, I, when, I, when I was reading John Frame, I, I, I thought he was, he was correct. He said, We're, the regulative principle is not restricted to the narrow sense of corporate worship, but the principle for all of life. So uh, he's taken a lot of heat, I know, from a lot of those in the Reformed camp uh, strict, in the strict sense, but um, th they would think that this to be unsatisfactory to distinguish a strict principle for corporate worship and the principle for the rest of life. But let's ask the question now, is there a role for human thought in the planning of our worship services? Uh, do we need human wisdom in addition to God's word to plan for our worship? We, we just talked about the synagogue. There wasn't a whole lot of detail there. Uh, could it point to uh, what we need to do? That's, an, that's another issue. Westminster Confession deals with that. So I think you have chapter 1, section 6. So let's read that together. Westminster 1, 6. What's the, and, think, and think of this question again. Is there a role that we have in how we construct a worship service, I guess? The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set, set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as revealed in the word. And then this is where we'll focus in, in the last section. And that there are some, you could underline circumstances, concerning the worship of God and the government of his church. These are common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature, Christian prudence, and according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So what are the circumstances referring to? Uh, the confession points to them as what is common to human actions. So when we talk about elements, we talk about we're going to sing, but everybody in circumstances could be different uh, in how they sing. Uh, another example is an element of worship would be worshiping God on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. But in common human societies, when do we meet? I hope our society still meets between at least 6 a.m. and 9 p.m., right? I mean, <laughs> we're not meeting earlier than that. I mean, it could be different. I mean, Damon and Jen in, in Uganda could be worshiping God uh, uh, in, a in a different way if their culture was totally different. For instance, the, the chairs or pews, if they, didn't, if, if they didn't like sitting down, I guarantee you Damon would not have chairs. Well, he might have one, right, Matt? But uh, uh, he would, uh, uh, it, those, those are circumstances. So you have elements and you have circumstances. I think that's what they're, they're saying here. Uh, but what, it, what Frame suggested is what I liked. He said that, Instead of using the word circumstance, he likes to use application. So it goes back to the principles. If we are asking a question based on specifics of worship, using the term application, we can draw on a, a number of things that Scripture calls us to believe. And yet, 
he leaves us up to our specifics of the situation. I mean, how do you pray? I mentioned that. Are we praying exactly every word of God and every prayer we say? Or is there freedom given And as we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the needs that are, are there? Uh, what is the frequency of observing the Lord's Supper? How do we collect an offering? You can go down the list of various things. But um, I think in summary, it seems that the regulative principle, as defined by the Westminster, determines, drives at determining our responsibility is to discover what God commands in Scripture. That's what I like about it. You've got to go to Scripture to figure out what it says, and then you, you have to learn how to apply it. So that's how I would take that. Uh, so really, after saying all that, I'm not sure really where I stand on, on, in a full camp in the sense of the terms, but I'm really leaning there on the strengths of the regulative principle. And uh, I'd encourage you to read. There's a lot of articles, I think, uh, other websites on the bottom. The, uh, there's one from Kevin DeYoung. I, I go to his blog frequently, um, the Gospel Coalition. And he had a helpful blog, and, and he had the word freeing. There are, there are five freedoms of freeing truths of the regulative principle. And that helps. What are those freedoms? Real quickly, the freedom from cultural captivity, the freedom over constant battles and preferences, the freedom of conscience, the freedom to be cross-cultural, the freedom to focus on the center. But all these freedoms really get back to the Bible, and we need to find what it has to say about our worship. So read that on your own time, and uh, there's a lot of other articles. I think I also gave you some uh, other articles as well. We see the regulative principle as let's worship God as he wants to be worshipped. I think that's what I'm saying. Uh, it's, it's, and when I know Kevin DeYoung said there's freeing truths of the regulative principle, I would just insert there's freedoms in the new covenant worship. Uh, I think we've seen in Hebrews, when we get to the climax of Christ, there is, there is something totally different in the way we worship. We're worshiping in the spirit and truth. There is freedom now that has been given. So... Um, the regulative principle pertains to me to all of worship, not just the official uh, meetings of worship. First um, Corinthians ten thirty one uh, says, do, "Do it all to the glory of God." So, uh, in conclusion, I, I think we should not re- view any of these terms just like any controversial topic that uh, that we mentioned. Let us not make quick judgments. Let us. Let us extensively read into them and understand where these people have come. I, I think that's helpful for me. I still need to dig into these 15 centuries of thought to develop these confessions of the faith that are so, so key. And it helps me understand. There's people that say, don't worry, uh, the Bible is my confession. Well, there's some weaknesses to that. It really, you know, how do you, how do you view scripture? How do you, where, where is your growing in the Lord? I know that, was, that happened for me in college. What do I believe? Where do I stand? Uh, how do I view all of these terms and justification, sanctification, glorification? How does God work? Uh, what happens to the Old Testament believers? All those things. But I, I would just encourage you to uh, not make any quick judgments about either camp, but take it to the Word of God. Uh, the regulative principle I, I've seen is in, in a lesser negative light because of that. Uh, God has laid out a particular acceptable way of worshiping Him. And it's when we come to Him in reverence and awe, how guilty am I but when, I when I come to the Lord so flippantly and, and just ask my request of whatever it may be, uh, lately more sleep at night or whatever else, and, that really, and that's primarily for my wife, <laughs> but, but are we really coming to the Lord with reverence for who he is? Um, 
We are to abide by Scripture's regulations for worship. However, I think there are elements in human decisions that need to be made in how we apply these things. That's, again, why I love being here at this church. There's, our elders are leading us uh, through the Word of God, applying these principles that we've stated here, I believe. Um, different churches facilitate worship in different ways. How many, how many hymns do you sing versus praise songs? How many... Uh, uh, how do, you, do you only sing the Psalms? I, I was surprised to find there's a lot of churches that hold to exclusive psalmody. Uh, how how do we handle these topics? How do we how do we how often do we do all of these uh, uh, the uh, the Lord's Prayer, baptisms, everything else? But uh, specifically related to music, that's the topic I want to get into next week. Is just just music. Um, it's funny how the Lord takes you through these. I wanted to get to that immediately. And uh, in God's providence, bringing me to these passages, that is not the case. Uh, we need to understand worship is all of life. It's not just music. Remember we listed everything on the board? Worship is all of life, um, not just music, even though we use the word as if it's only music. There's a quote. I think you have it. The bottom line, uh, John Frame says, we can be uh, two things, more conservative and more liberal. And right off the bat, I know you, you guys should be going, wait a minute, wait, can we be more liberal? Uh, what are we talking about? More, more conservative and more liberal in, in, than most students of Christian worship. We need to be conservative and holding exclusively to God's commands and scripture as a rule for worship. Yet we need to be liberal in defending the Christian liberties. And I love that about when we went through 1 Corinthians, what were the, what's the purpose of all of the freedoms that we have in worship? We, we should take our liberties for the benefit of the edification of the body and not for anything else to, for our own satisfaction. Uh, so we need to be more liberal in defending the liberty of how we apply these things in, I would say, legitimate non, uh, ways. I mean, they have to be legitimate, non though non-traditional. So what will worship be like uh, 30 years from now? I mean, there's, you know, this cult cultural relevance, all these things. Uh, I don't, we won't get into that, but... Uh, I would I would argue that we can defend the liberty by by applying commandments solely based in the new covenant. There is freedom in the new covenant. I know I stated the freedom, the regulative principle, but freedom in Christ is what I'm getting at. Uh, we couldn't emphasize more of being acceptable. And how are we to be acceptable before God? We come to God only through Christ. That is, uh, we read that um, earlier. Only in Christ have we received full atonement for our sin. It was only Christ that truly had acceptable worship. If you think about that, uh, he remained without any sin. He was completely holy. If you think of someone who was acceptable to God, it was Christ. And he was there. He died on the cross for that, for us. I hope it drives us to grace. I hope we go back to Hebrews 12, not the same. That we would go back, we read this text, and we respond in gratefulness. That we take this text as, as God has, has birthed in us new affections. Affections are different than emotions that we talked about. Affections will truly motivate us to action. And uh, for you fathers, you can relate with me. I, you, you come home, and there's nothing in the world more joy. It uh, seems like just to give you more joy when your boys, just your kids, just come up to you and give you a big hug. We'll go run out and jump on the trampoline or whatever it is. If, if, if I have an affection toward my kids, I'm going to be doing something for them. I'm going to be 
playing with them or, or and, and being involved in their lives, that affection we need to have for Christ is, it, it will lead us to action. And it's by his grace alone. That is what will empower us. Um, the actions occur because it is what is most beautiful in our sight. So uh, you have an affection towards something because of its beauty. And I, I pray that we see Christ more beautiful, that we look at the old covenant and then we just look to this new covenant so precious that we would now come before God in true reverence and awe, knowing that it is not us, but it is truly what Christ has borne on, uh, on our uh, place. And then we see uh, the gospel. We see that we've received uh, an unshakable kingdom. And, and what is our job? What is our job when we've received this kingdom? Our job is to be grateful for it. In that gratitude, it will respond, it, that, that will drive our hearts, get us out in doing things, but we tend to just focus on, I gotta, I gotta help, I gotta help the lost, I gotta evangelize, I gotta, the, the chief end is worship, the chief end is glorifying God. We must not lose sight of that, we, and that comes from the gratefulness in our hearts. I think Hebrews does conclude, though, in the last few verses, in chapter 13, he gives us indications of what acceptable worship is. I'll finish here in Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When I read that, it just jumped off the page to me because this is, this is the acknowledgement of his name, Psalm 29 that we read. We ascribe to him the glories to his name. We recognize and we acknowledge his name with our mouths. Why do we do that? We do that because of what he's done in Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, that is our response. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Father, this is a humbling thing. We have gone through much and uh, uh, probably flew way too fast through it all. But Lord, you know that uh, uh, you know where our hearts are and where we stand before a holy God. We do respond as Isaiah. We just want to fall prostrate before you that we know our sin. We know our hearts even now, even in thoughts that we have, they are not acceptable to you. The only acceptable worship we can have, how we worship you, is through Christ. I pray that we would see the gospel in a deeper light. I pray that we would see uh, how wonderful it is that you've given us your word, that it would give us a, a strong affection to understand the beauty of Christ, and that would draw us into gratitude for you. Thank you, Lord, for being, uh, being a sovereign God and giving us this sovereign joy in our lives that, uh, that allows us to, to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.